I'm Patricia Grabarek. And I'm Katina Sawyer, and welcome to the Worker Being Podcast. So today we are so thrilled. We have an amazing guest. Uh, we have Dr. Nikki Blacksmith on the show, and uh, she is a co-founder and co-CEO of Blackhawk Behavior Science, which is the world's leading expert in understanding and leveraging team human capital for accelerating startup growth, diversity, and success. So Nikki, we're so happy to have you here today. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, yeah yes. we're thrilled to have you. And just love to hear you introduce yourself a little bit further. Like, tell us more about your background and, you know, how you start, decided to start Blackhawk. Sure. Um, so I'm an industrial organizational psychologist. Woohoo! Um, Yay! Yay! <laughs> and the quick and dirty answer is that I saw a problem in the real world and couldn't help myself. Um, what I what happened was I was reading an article that was talking about um, venture capital funding for startups. Um, at this time, I was, you know, consulting for a venture capital firm in New York City. So I was really reading a lot and trying to kind of get up to speed on, you know, just the basics as I hadn't had a lot of experience in venture capital at that point. Anyways, um, I saw an article that said about less than 3% of women receive venture capital funding. And I, my head about blew up because I, as an IO, have always um, specialized in recruitment and hiring. And in the hiring world, you know, that would be completely illegal. So to me, I was just like, how is this happening? Why is it happening? There's got to be a solution. We can fix this. Um, so I really started doing, you know, it took me years of research just under trying to understand startups and the decision-making process that investors go through. Um, and eventually I realized we can use all the IO psychology science to address some of the issues that are happening and hopefully um, reduce that, that gap uh, and diversify the entrepreneur field. I mean, we obviously love that because uh, as as women who uh, founded a company, um, and I know you are as well, um, that's something that we're also super passionate about and uh, obviously want to promote more of um, in the world. And so because you're an expert in this area, you've spent years studying this and, and now you've spent a lot of time practicing this as well. Um, it's clear that you think like people and the power of people and your background in IO, just like us, um, really are central to the success of startups. And you mentioned, you know, solving some of these big problems like bias and, um, you know, uh, lack of diversity. So why are people so important in startups and, and how do, how does focusing on people help change some of those problems you just brought up? Yeah, I think, um, people are the, center of startups they're they're basically one in the same when it begins so if you have a startup um at the very very beginning like idea stage you really only have a person or two p or people or three people there are no buildings or no there's nothing else but the people so um obviously getting the right people together to start with is is critical for startups um, most startups fail because of people-based conflict, team-based conflict. Um, a lot of co-founders have conflict and split up. I've seen some really nasty um, breakups, I would call them almost, between founders that you know end up suing each other and you know, big fights and, and 
the business fails because of it. And um, I think that's sad because those are easy, fixable problems. So people are critical. Um, if you look at the startup rate of success, it's about 75 to 90% failure rate, um, depending on where you get the data, which is very high. So in my head, I'm thinking, why is this that high? Like, there's got to be a way we can reduce it. You know, we've, as a society, we've studied business. And um, for a long time, we know how to help large organizations um, be more successful. So why can't we do the same for the startups? Uh, If you look at the research, most of it says that it comes back to the founder as the failure of the company. Um, But you'll see things like marketing strategy and there wasn't any product market fit or the timing was wrong. And to me, those are, yeah, those are probably reasons why the startup failed. But if you go back to the basics, like there's somebody behind the marketing strategy and behind the product development. So it ultimately comes back to, are these individuals in the company the right ones? And are they, you know, building a team that's going to grow together um, in a healthy way, um, get along over time and, and tackle a lot of challenges? Well, when you were talking about the breakups, I was like, Katina and I can never break I up. I know. <laughs> I was like, you're scaring me. Stop it. <laughs> um, if we're if we're getting on the verge of a breakup, Nikki, we're going to be calling you and being like, don't let us break up. Help us. Help no. us. <laughs> Couples counseling. Please. There was one startup. I mean, the reason they broke up was because they had three founders and each founder kind of had their own idea of what the startup was going to be. So having that like shared mental model and that um, overlap of, you know, where you're going, where you're starting, I would say start there. And it sounds like you two are already there. So you're ahead of the curve. Yay. Yes, that's true. I mean, we, we definitely uh, did like a visioning activity back in September and we both went in separate rooms and like wrote down all this stuff. Then we came back and it was like almost identical. It was kind of, yeah, it was, it was wild. Um, yeah. Yes. So thank crazy. you for making us feel better. Yes. <laughs> um, it's a simple thing. But you'd be surprised how often <laughs> that that conversation does not happen. Hmm. I, yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, but on the note of what you're talking about with like the people and getting the right people in place, I guess there's a couple of questions that stem from what you were saying there. So like the first one is like, how do startups attract those right people and how do they create cultures where the people actually want to be there and they're happy and they're thriving and they're doing what they need to be doing to make the organization successful? Like, what do you typically see? What do I see? Like work well, what I would recommend. Yeah. Okay. How about, what do you recommend? Let's go there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if I've seen anything work really well. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what would you tell them to do since no one's doing this well? (laughs) I mean, we're still in the infancy of integrating, you know, people science into startups. Mostly if you just Google on Amazon, you'll get things like marketing and finance and product development, but rarely will you ever see, um, you know, teamwork and team building and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say the, what I always recommend to startups and when I've seen it start off well, I've seen a lot of start off well and, and 
it's hard to define success with a startup because you got to wait like five or 10 years <laughs> to see if it, it pans out. But um, start by defining the core values. Um, and this goes to the culture piece as well. So a lot of times people think um, when they're starting a company that they don't need to think about the culture or the values of their company until they start hiring a bunch of people um, because they, they kind of bucket into the HR branch. Um, but if you ask me, I think it's probably one of the single most important things a founder can do because it creates boundaries and parameters for them to work within. Um, and it helps, you know, if you have say like, these are our values and a customer comes to you with a project, it's very lucrative. If they don't fit in your values, I mean, for the company, that would be, you know, a, not a great decision to go forward with that. But if they have those values in place and they can see how it doesn't align with what they're trying to do very easily, then you know it's a lot easier to make those decisions. Um, and beginning from the start to build a culture is critical. Um, you know, my co-founder and I, we sat down and asked ourselves, you know, you know, eventually we're going to be an employer, right? And as I was a ecologist, like, what kind of employer do we want to be? What kind of company do we want to be? What do we want to stand for? Um, and we spend a lot of time thinking about that. But now every decision we make comes back to, you know, is this who we are? Does this fit in with what we're trying to do? Um, and it also, like, once you start bringing on employees, it creates a level of empowerment you wouldn't normally see um, with the decision making because they know where the boundaries are. Um, and a lot of times in startups, people don't know where the boundaries are. Uh, so that's where I would start, I think, is start by defining the core values of the company. Like, what do you stand for? What are you going to do? Why are you doing it? Um, and then make sure every decision is aligned with that moving forward. Um, that creates a way to create a culture, like, intentionally, instead of a, what I see a lot of times happen is startups get together, they don't think about, you know, the people-based um, concepts because it's soft, it doesn't bring in money right away, and they end up, you know, I think we all saw Uber, you know, as an example in the news a while back, and they had a terrible culture of sexual harassment and unethical behavior, and likely that stemmed because there was never a point where they defined what the culture was, so it just kind of unraveled. Um, I, I never worked at Uber, so I don't know, but seeing it from the outside, that would be my my guess. Yeah, it's really interesting that you're bringing all that up because um, I think we have talked a little bit about culture, but we should probably talk about it more. One thing I do think is really interesting, like you were saying about being aligned and having those kinds of conversations where things can just sort of happen, but you're not really cognizant of it. So like we had had uh, a conversation about what we want to be doing like task wise, um, like where we want to focus our efforts and energies and whatever. And we realized that a lot of the time we were spending was actually not aligned with what we wanted to do. And so it was just an interesting thing of recognizing like, oh, if this is what we want to do, then we should do more of that and less of these other things. Right. Um, and it's such an easy thing. But if you don't like make it explicit, you can fall into a pattern where you're kind of not paying attention. And then you end up kind of getting swept away by whatever like people are asking you to do or whatever the people that come in the door bring with them as a culture or their attitudes or 
how they add to things. And then all of a sudden it's like you lose control over what you had because you're being pulled instead of you pushing it. It sounds like you're saying. Yeah, I, I think that's a way better way <laughs> to describe it than I described it. Um, absolutely. And I think one of the things too that I didn't mention, but once you have those values and those things in place, probably the second most important thing that's, I would say not talked about enough is self-awareness for the leader. So the leaders, the founders, they have to model those actual behaviors that they're trying to encourage and reinforce. And so having a really um, realistic, like look at oneself and, and reflection upon, you know, am I behaving in a way that I want my employees to behave? Am I representing these values that I hope to reinforce in my company? Um, but self-awareness is, is, of course, a lifelong journey, but um, I think it's way important, way more important for a startup leader um, because that is almost the definition of the company. Everyone's going to look to them to see how should I behave, how should I act. So they need to be hyper aware of how others are perceiving them. That's a really great point because I just think about like, even Katina and myself, right? Like we tend to work longer hours and maybe we'd recommend others. And if we get to a place where we are an employer, we don't want to create a culture where people are working really long hours and, you know, leading towards burnout. We want to make sure that our culture is one that obviously espouses our values, the values of everything that we are educating people on and wanting to focus on. And so like you, but you can't, tell people like oh no 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 you need to only work you know the basic number of hours and then send emails in the middle of the night right or work really late yourself and stay like let's just say if you're in a physical space stay in the physical space long past everyone else right be there before everyone else arrives every single day so then you're starting to show that actually you know maybe we should all be working that hard and even if you act truly truly do not want your team to be doing that they will probably start to follow suit and you'll create a dynamic where people think that they need to be there all the time or whatever, right? But in this example, like when it comes to things like burnout and co-founders and founders tend to get very uh, obsessed with their work because it's their passion, right? That's why they're doing it. Um, but they need to know, like if they want to create an environment where people have balance, you have to also show what it's like to have balance, Um and that's just a very salient example for myself, but it leads to a question that I had around what people do in startups to support employee well-being. So like, what are some good practices, innovative practices that you've seen where um, even though startups are kind of high pressure in some ways, um, what have, what are good founders doing to support the employee wellness or what are you recommending people do? Yeah, so what I've seen, um, and hopefully we see a, a more of a shift in this way, um, and by the way, I do the exact same thing, <laughs> your example. So I need to watch that myself as well. But anyways, um, the things that I've seen that have worked well and that I recommend um, start with kind of like a basic philosophical or humanitarian type of viewpoint is that we're all people and we're not evolved to work in a, in a building for all day long. Like that's just not our background as human beings. Um, so we have to really take into consideration, like what does it mean to be a healthy um, human being and what kind of environment, you know, do we need to build to 
encourage the wellness that, and when I say wellness, define it as, you know, truly understanding what creates a positive environment and healthy environment for um, people. I can give you a good example. I used to work, I used to call it dungeon or the jail cell, (laughs) but it was this office and you would go in it and all you saw was like a long hallway of offices. All the doors would be closed and there weren't really any windows because it was made out of um, repurposed old building from something else that wasn't designed to be an office building. And I think I physically felt my like levels of vitamin D go down and I could feel it in my body. Like the fact that I just didn't have light for 40 hours every week. Um, it was, it took a toll. And so thinking about the person from a holistic standpoint, not just work, like what is it, um, the physical, you know, mental, emotional aspects of wellness, um, and bringing and integrating those into the workplace, I think is a really cool way that I've seen companies start to address, um, how to improve wellness. Another really innovative thing that I've seen, and I don't know if I would really call it innovative as much as it's just not done right now, like in workplaces, is that we focus on the process and learning rather than the outcome. So a lot of times what happens in organizations is that somebody might make a mistake and then the leader gets upset and that person from then on there out is working in fear that they're going to mess up and they're going to get yelled at. Um, some companies um, are doing things like where they get together and focus on um, past failures and mistakes that have been made and they talk about them as a learning experience rather than as you know a performance issue. Um, so if you think about work, the way we work right now, it's we, we focus so much on the outcome and we want that outcome to be perfect. And if it's not, there's you know problems, but with not realistic for human nature, like human beings are gonna make mistakes no matter what, it's inevitable. Um, so shifting the focus to how did we handle the mistake and what can we learn from the mistake and really spinning failure into a positive experience um, has can help well-being a lot because it creates a really um, a better culture, you know, with stronger psychological safety, moving to the idea that, you know, no one's perfect. The fact that we even try to pretend that like, we can be is ridiculous. Um, and we can, as people start to view work a little bit differently um, and think about failures and mistakes just as growth and learning experiences. And, you know, this goes in, in someone's personal life as well. Like bad experiences, they're like built into our body. They were made to happen because, you know, like, for example, I mean, simple evolutional simple evolutionary psychology would say that, you know, you know, if you think about the fear um, response, fight or flight, that is our body. There's, you know, trouble in the situation and and we feel a physical response to it. Um, We feel a lot of physical responses to a lot of things that happen at work and negative experiences can really take a toll on somebody if it's not handled right. Um, But if we can change those negative experiences to be actually like, this is inevitable. This is what, you know, we expect to happen, how can we actually handle it? So instead of focusing on the mistake, you focus on how it's handled. Um, and I think that can remove some of the fear that exists in organizational cultures um, and create a much 
safer, psychologically safe culture. Yeah, I think you gave so many good tips there in terms of how to really think about your culture, uh, you know, more um, consciously, but also some of the things that you mentioned are really like base core principles of what makes for a yep. good workplace, <laughs> right? Like making sure that you're get, you're thinking about um, wellness holistically and not forgetting about some aspects. So it's like, yeah, maybe we have like a really, uh, you know, fun team, but we're all stuck indoors and we don't move and we're like vampires, <laughs> you know, like perhaps we should get outside and do something like that would be good. Um, so there's like all different aspects to it as well as, um, creating that team culture, psychological safety, like you were talking about. And so I'm sure when you go into companies and folks are looking for some guidance around, um, these kinds of concepts, some of the ways that you get them to um, embrace some of these more innovative ways of doing things is to help them overcome some misconceptions or, um, you know, misperceptions that they might have about what makes a, success, a successful startup. Um, and you mentioned a couple things uh, before that people usually focus on, like, oh, it was marketing or it was product strategy or whatever. Um, but are there some things around the psychology of startups or the people aspect of startups that you feel people just get wrong and you hear over and over again as like common common myths about what you need to be successful? Like I remember when I was in consulting and I was and Patricia was in the assessment space for a long time, but I remember like I would hear from clients a lot like yeah, like, especially like, you know, managers that have been around for a really long time, like, yeah, like everyone else probably needs those assessments to make to understand who's the best fit for the job. But I just know, like, I've been doing this for so long, I can pick out who the best person for the job is immediately, you know. Um, and so you kind of have to sit down with the person and like, okay, actually, this is what the data suggests. And you might actually have the, the most bias the longest history of feeling pretty sure that you know exactly who a person is as soon as you start talking to them like that might be an even bigger problem so I'm sure there are things like that out there in startups that people think like oh to have a successful startup it has to be like this uh, maybe it's based on the media what people have seen etc but what are some of the things that you think people think that they have to have or think being in a startup is like um, that they get wrong compared to what you just mentioned actually creates something that's really sustainable Oh my goodness, there are so many of them. <laughs> um, well, you mentioned kind of that gut instinct. I hear that a lot from venture capitalists. Like, oh, we just know talent when we see it. We just know when a good team is a good team um, versus, you know, really assessing and using um, human capital of data to, to assess those people um, instead of snap judgments made after maybe like an hour conversation. Um, one thing that I find um, and kind of, goes through the earlier question you asked just before this is that a lot of time founders they have a, an idea right and it's theirs and and they're protective of it and they bring in people to work on it and there's this mentality of you work for me and uh, do what I say that feels like you know the workplace in 1980s not the workplace of 2020s um, and so you know I'll give you a good example I had I was working with a CEO and he was all about wellness. He was creating this company surrounded, like he wanted every aspect of his company to be, um, to foster wellness in, in his customer base, you know, emotional, mental, spiritual, like you name it. Wellness was like the center of it, you know? And then I was talking to him and he was frustrated because one of his um, employees, brand new employee, probably, two or three weeks into the job, wasn't working around the clock, wasn't working 90 hours. 
And I just like, oh, no. I didn't even know how to respond because I just laughed. I'm like, um, okay, if you really truly want to create a company around wellness, let's start with your people first. And working 90 hours is not healthy. And you should never expect that from somebody. You don't even do that. <laughs> so uh, having this idea that, you know, change it from like you're working for me to you're working with me, um, I think can maybe address some of those issues. But, you know, work is not separate from wellness, um, which is what I had to explain. And like people spend most of their times at work. So the experiences they have there are greatly um, impactful in terms of how they view their overall life. So one misconception is that kind of like wellness and, and people are separate from the organizational you know experiences and they're really not they're kind of one and the same another interesting misconception is that people tend to think that uh entrepreneurs are very high risk takers and actually they tend to not be um what hmm. happens is people on the outside see them as risk takers because they think oh i could that's a really risky you know, uh, idea. I, I would never do that myself. How, you know, I'm so surprised that somebody's doing that. Um, but what's happening behind the scenes is they're taking calculated risks. So for myself, if you just, you know, saw me and, and my co-founder and we started this company, you might think, oh, that's super risky, but we know what we're talking about. We have a PhD. We've been thinking about this stuff for years. We've been working on this stuff for years. Like it's not a huge risk. We're not just like, creating a new app and jumping into a space where we have no expertise. Um, you know, if I was starting a beauty company, maybe that would be very risky for me because I don't know anything about it. Um, but most entrepreneurs are very calculated. And when they take risks, they, they define the, um, the issues and you know, potential, you know, fallouts and, and really think through, you know, is this, the right risk to take because there are a lot of risks that come up um you know if you think just about for example accepting funding you might think wow that's great like you're getting you know million dollars from this investor why would you say why is that even a decision why do you think about that but in the reality is that founder is going to be working with that investor for five to ten years so it's really like is this a relationship i want to build um and so having that understanding um before the risk they, they define the and confine the risk parts of it and make that calculated risk um so that's probably one one of the misconceptions another misconception is that entrepreneurs need to be optimistic which i 100 percent agree with but this is uh where we get a little bit dorky and io psychology stuff but it's a non-linear relationship um, <laughs> You need some optimism, right? You can't just go into it and be like, oh, I'm going to fail right away. But a lot of times founders are over optimistic. They're just so, so optimistic that they don't see the potential pitfalls or, you know, where the risks lie. Um, and so, yes, you do need to be positive and believe in yourself and be optimistic, but there's a line where it becomes too much and it can actually be quite dangerous um, because then you don't know when to stop on a certain project or, um, you know, realize that your idea is not that great and your customers have been telling you that and you're just not listening because you think it's so great that you're just not talking to the right people or something like that. <laughs> so optimism is one of those really interesting, tricky um, 
things about entrepreneurship is like you need to be optimistic but don't be too optimistic and that feels kind of tied to the risk-taking piece right like if you are too optimistic then you might not take a calculated risk you might take a you know random risk because you feel super positive so it makes sense that those two things would kind of go hand in hand that you'd be more calculated in your risk taking as well as tempered in your optimism um but those are funny because as you were saying them so i feel like this entire episode katina are going to keep bringing it back to ourselves so (laughs) (laughs) this is why we've invited you spoiler alert please we, yeah, <laughs> please tell us all the things yeah, as entrepreneurs about we should be thinking about. <laughs> but I was gonna say, like, Katina and I are both not risk takers, like at all, like mm-hmm. totally not risk takers. And then I would say op- we're fairly optimistic, but it's very tempered. Our optimism is very mm-hmm. tempered. Um, so it's really interesting I to hear you talk about that. The PhD territory. Yeah, <laughs> that's true too. It's always <laughs> like too. it's complicated. Like, what's the forecast? It's complicated. You know, like it'll. We we have a lot of confidence in our skills and abilities to do thing to to. We know what we're talking about, and we we know we can do what we need to do. But we also recognize where our weaknesses are, and we don't want to overlook those and just be like they'll be great. So like. I think that it we try to be realistic, I guess, as part of the like tempering or something, um, which maybe is helpful. Yeah, and also, I mean, I think I don't know about you all, but as a going through, you know, doctoral program, you get trained to think critically and to question things, um, yeah. which I think is probably what you all are really good at, um, and why you're able to kind of manage that that risk. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> we do get kind of forced into. Uh, thinking about things really critically, which is very helpful in an entrepreneurial yeah. setting. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, those... yeah I like to think... sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I like to think of my um, doctoral uh, experience as training to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> I like that. That's interesting. Good camp. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was going to say, like, I think those misconceptions are so... I mean, valid, right? In terms of the types of people that are in entrepreneurship and the types of startup cultures that are being created. Um, but then I also think like the first one you mentioned around like, um, you know, the expectations and things like that, right? Um, and how people are going to be working within your own startup is really interesting because I've definitely seen that as well. Um, so like thinking about how to manage your people or your culture, like being... I, honestly, it would help your people if they know that you aren't just taking every single risk, right? <laughs> they want to yeah. know those things. So it just feels like all of these misconceptions that people external to a startup have, um, once they're able to get into a startup, it seems like some of those things kind of go away and actually help the culture. Because if you trust that your your founder is not going to be making risks willy-nilly and they're not going to be, um, you know, so optimistic that they don't see the challenges that you are currently dealing with that would create a culture that's very difficult so um it's good to hear that even though we all from the outside might have these perceptions actually um, a startup environment isn't as scary maybe to be a part of all the time um based on what you had just said yeah and you just reminded me of something too another misconception um people in our society tend to have a mental model or schema or stereotype of what it 
means to be an entrepreneur. And usually they conjure up some image of a 25 year old white male with a hoodie working in his garage. Um, so I just want to take the opportunity to discuss that misconception real quick and say <laughs> that you do not have to be <laughs> a male man to be an entrepreneur. Um, there are a lot of women entrepreneurs out there. They're personalities vary so widely. There's no one size fits all. Um, so I think we need to, to get rid of that misconception. And I hope IO psychologists can, can help with that um, showing that, you know, gender really has nothing to do with how somebody performs. And I think the age piece you called out is also interesting because I do think you're right. A lot of people think it's some kid that, oh, like, you know, there's, working out of their parents garage so they don't have to worry about money and they can just jump in but a lot of people that start businesses are starting them because of issues and things that they've seen in the market through their experience so they're not necessarily the like 25 year old kid down the street right um they're probably have some experience some level of experience to be more successful you need to understand your market Oh, sorry. Yeah, I go ahead. Didn't mean to interrupt you. I was going to say I looked at to to kind of see what is the real distribution of age, and and you know it depends on the sample, of course. But most of the research, what I see is that usually late thirties, early forties is the average age for an entrepreneur. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, but it makes sense. It's exactly what you just said, right? Like people don't want to just start a business without knowing what they're doing. They <laughs> want to feel confident and like they've mastered things. So they're more likely to do it after they feel like confident in their own capabilities, um, which usually comes with experience and practice. Yeah. It's interesting as you were saying that too, because I was thinking about even for the misconception, which I think you're a hundred percent correct that people are like, Oh, like every startup is like some like coding boy whiz genius that like starts some mm -hmm. random thing. But even if you look at like people that, do fit that actual stereotype it's still kind of a myth like yeah like Mark Zuckerberg kind of fit that right but like he was exceptionally good at coding <laughs> so it's not like random right like he wasn't just like oh you know what I think I want I think I just want to start something it was like he started something because he was good at coding and then like Elon Musk for whatever but like if you look like he had been in like a PhD program before for like physics and he was like known to be an extremely exceptional coder and like so like it's not like they started things that were like in some realm that they had no expertise in that they were not recognized as skillful in like it's actually quite opposite like uh, they've started right. in places where they had like a clear talent advantage to get going um and then it kind of sparks this misconception that like oh like you know I can just do that but not realizing that like those are examples of people who actually have like an exceptional amount of talent in that arena yeah I think that it's really interesting it just reminds me of kind of some stories I've heard about their leadership styles, but <laughs> I could essentially, imagine. you know, you're right. They get into it and a founder because they are capable and technical in a certain area. Like for my ourselves, for example, we're industrial organizational psychologists. So we're talking about teamwork and leadership and wellness and, you know, but eventually you get to a point where you're running a business and not, you know, working in your main mm -hmm. area of expertise um and me personally i cannot wait to hire a ceo because 
I love my eye psychology work and that's all I want to do. And I just want to nerd out all day. But most founders have a very hard time giving up that um, role because it's so glamorized and, you know, there's prestige in being the CEO, but also they don't want to hand over control or let somebody else take it. It's very hard to, you know, hand it over um, when you basically put all your, I hate cliches, but like blood, sweat and tears into it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that's probably why we see some of the wheels falling off from a people perspective in some of these companies where people are very highly technically skilled, but they don't uh, try to do what you're saying, which is like consciously um, build a culture and show humility of what they don't know. <laughs> um, so yeah, that that all makes perfect sense. Um, and is really interesting, actually, because I think you're right, like who people think our founders is off. And then even for people that do fit that stereotype, I think people forget um, that they their level of risk that they took is much less than just some random person who was like an okay coder at their at their college or whatever you know and just thinks they could like mystically become this because somebody else did right so um Mm -hmm. so yeah that's super interesting um so I have a question that Patricia and I struggle with sometimes (laughs) which is um (laughs) you're obviously very busy and uh you're trying to get a company off the ground And we know that people are really important and focusing on this is really important. And you mentioned that um, you did some conscious exercising around, you know, like, hey, how do we make sure we get the culture that we want and what's our plan and alignment and things like that. But could you walk us a little bit more through kind of as a company what you're doing that you also recommend your clients do? Because I know it can be difficult with being the person running the business and having all the business end of things to run to sometimes practice what you preach. So how are you kind of balancing that? That's a great question. I think sometimes I think of myself as like my own guinea pig. (laughs) (laughs) One big question that we had, obviously, and I think a lot of other leaders did, is how do we have a team virtually and create the same level of cohesion and Um, you know, collegiality that you would get in person. Um, And so one of the things that we did was to really put that like on the top of our mind, like every day, like these are people that are working with us and they need to feel like they're part of something. So we started in multiple different ways. We first, there was a big onboarding process because we're IO psychologists and we that's what we do. <laughs> so we had like a two person company and, and an extensive onboarding process. You'll probably never find that again, but um, it was really important for us to have the people that work with us know what we value, what we care about and to kind of align themselves to that. And we showed them behavioral examples of what does that actually look like, you know, here in the culture. Um, also sharing the overall vision and keeping in high communication because things change really fast with the people you work for or with the people that are working for you um, to remind them that like they might be doing something a little like working on a social media task, but it's actually a huge contribution because it feeds into these other, you know, bigger goals like creating an awareness of your company and, and um, you know, thinking about communications. So having them, really understand that their work is meaningful um, and significant has goes a long way. And I think um, another thing would be gratitude. Um, you know, I was talking about stories about 
Elon Musk and others. And I remember this one story I read about him that, you know, he had this employee that worked, he, he went to an employee and said, hey, can you do this one task that has never been done before? Most people think is impossible, um, make it happen. And this guy worked probably for like three to five years on this project, finally figured out a solution that no one else in the world could have figured out, sent it to Elon. And all he responded was, thanks. <laughs> that's ridiculous exactly. that was my reaction like oh my god like what this poor guy he's like how anticlimactic he <laughs> <laughs> just made a miracle happen and all you say is things and and i think that is gratitude is overlooked you know appreciating and, and saying thank you to your employees sometimes and they end up leaving if, if that's the case and you see high turnover in those kind of companies with leaders who don't appreciate the work and um, effort that people put in because it does take a lot out of them. But um, that was gratitude is incredibly important. <laughs> That's I making think. me laugh. Still. <laughs> <laughs> three yeah, to five years bad. of working on something and you're like, the, t- today's the day I finally solved it. It's just like, great. <laughs> I got anything else? Thanks. Bye. That's horrible. <laughs> oh man. Oh man. Uh, yeah. it was one part of what he was doing probably so to him it was maybe a smaller thing but to this guy it was like you just spent five years doing well they probably this. paid him a lot too I mean I would imagine that like if you're gonna have someone spend that long doing just that like it should probably be important I don't know um but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the other thing I that maybe you don't hear as often that I practice what I preach is um I'm sure you've heard the the saying that like running is 99% um, mental, only 1% physical. Mm-hmm. I think startups are kind of like that. Um, a lot of it is about the mindset and your attitude towards the situation. Um, it's, you know, emotional contagion, for example, like if you are constantly negative, then that's going to rub off on other people. But if you're positive and enthusiastic and, you know, you lift your employees up when, when things get hard, that goes an incredibly long way. So for me, it's like, yes, I need to do the work, but the work is just the work. I need to remember that this is going to be an incredibly difficult journey. There are going to be ups, there are going to be downs, there's going to be chaos. Um, and I just need to not be, you know, not complain, not be negative, and really just enjoy the trials and tribulations that you experience because it's kind of like nothing you would ever experience you know in other i mean you guys know you've been doing it um it's a especially when you're working with a co-founder that you trust and that you know aligns with their vision so highly like it's so much fun Mm -hmm. so much fun um and just kind of reminding each other like you know my co-founder she's amazing um I think for her and I, a lot of times it's like half of our job communicating with one another isn't about the task work. It's about motivational and pep talks and (laughs) just helping each other like go along and and realize, you know, we're just starting. We shouldn't expect this. And just knowing that somebody is there, we always joke that like when one of us is down, the other one will bring it up. And so we can't ever both be, (laughs) you know, (laughs) negative or down at the same time, but it is really helpful because it goes back and forth. You know, there's just issues and having that social support and using communication as a motivational tool and not just as an information sharing tool that I think I would recommend highly because that 
I mean, we talk about it all the time with ourselves, like, what would we do if the other person wasn't here? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so for me, I think, you know, a lot of it is around mental, like, mindsets and um, social support. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, everything you just said, like the gratitude piece, having somebody there for you, being able to like have um, open conversations about how you're feeling through all of this, but then also remembering to be grateful and thankful for all that you're doing and seeing and experiencing. It is its own journey, right? It's not like unless you start many companies, it's not going to happen again probably and even if you start many companies now you've got experience in starting it so it's no longer that first time so it's like a special magical time right um and so I really like that advice like making sure that you're taking that time to enjoy it appreciate it and then also be grateful for the people around you and all that they're doing and helping with and um And that obviously will lead to, as we've talked about many times on the podcast, gratitude can lead to so many good things, both for personal wellness, um, team cohesion and wellness as well. Um, So there's so many benefits to just having that type of mindset as you build your company. So I really love that. Um, Go ahead. I was just going to add one more thing um, since we're talking about wellness um, and working way too many hours. um, (laughs) (laughs) I've started to just, I listen to my body. You know, I, when it says go to sleep, Nikki, I go to sleep because the work that's going to come out of my brain when I'm groggy and tired is not even close to the quality that I could produce, you know, if my brain was rested. So I have a really difficult time with the like 40 hour work week. um, And I like that we're moving away from it because you can't force yourself to work if you're tired, you know, go take a nap it's your brain will produce like, and you'll do it faster too when you're ready and and fresh. So a lot of people just push through. Um, My advice is to listen to your body and stop when it tells you to stop. (laughs) Yes, that would be our advice too, (laughs) for sure. Um, Whether we listen to it every time is a different story, but (laughs) I think that it is, it is true, right? We know if you're not well, if you're not um, taking care of yourself, if you're exhausted you're not going to be performing at your peak anyways so why push yourself further Um, especially as a founder you have the flexibility to to kind of set that timeline right so try to make it make it healthy as you're doing it Um, so I know we're kind of getting close on time I wanted to ask you if there's anything else you just wanted to share with us about your work about yourself about startups and wellness um, before you wrap up Well, I could go all night, so that's not a question <laughs> you should ask me. <laughs> um, I can't think of anything without going on like another hour tangent. Um, but I would say that I'm really excited to bring in IO Psychology because um, I think it can have a big impact on the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Um, and so I encourage other IO psychologists, if they're listening to this, to um, start to investigate you know, the entrepreneurship and startup world um, to to be a part of that and to contribute to the science. That is awesome. We love that. And, uh, and also want to be a part of that. So that's very exciting. Um, and we have one more question for you, which is a fun question or we think it's fun. We always think our fun questions are fun, whether or not the guests think they're fun. We don't know. (laughs) Um, but the fun question is you are an amazing female entrepreneur, but 
I'm sure you have many, many strengths that um, you stand out for, but everyone usually has one or two things that are very specific strengths that they stand out for. So what would those who are closest to you say is your superpower? That's an easy one. Um, they would probably say it's a deadly combination of passion and focus. <laughs> um, I have this ability to just sit down and like get in the zone. Like to be in the flow is very easy for me because I'm doing what I love every day. Um, but <laughs> when I get in that zone, like nothing else around me is happening. <laughs> and you know, it's funny because in uh, when I was in grad school, my um, I had a classmate who kind of sat by me when we were doing work and she would start talking to me and I would just, you know, nod and say yes. And she would think I was responding to her, but like my brain was just like <laughs> not there. <laughs> like, it wasn't listening to her or anything, but I would just like, yeah, 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 whatever. And she, so she finally was like, Nikki, like, I need your attention. Turn and look at me. And now I'm going to answer you a question <laughs> because I can like really like take anything in the environment, like any kind of distraction. And it's just noise, background noise to me. Like I'm in the task 100% and being able to, to focus like that is really awesome to get like projects and work done. Um, not a lot of people can do that. Uh, my sister is extremely jealous and tells me that in her head, it's very loud and noisy and messy. And she doesn't understand how I can do that. <laughs> um, but that's a good superpower. It's a, it's a it's, yeah. <laughs> I like yeah, that one. Sure. That's awesome. Well, and also because it stems from the fact that you love what you're doing. So that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's funny that you say that because I actually am similar and I think my husband like wants to smack me half the time. He's just like, look at me. You're not paying attention. Smack, like, like try to do, get me to focus. Right. Cause I'm just sitting there and I'm not, uh, and I will do the same thing. I'll just be like, yeah, uh-huh. 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 And he's just like, what did I just say? Repeat what I said. And I, <laughs> just told and I say uh uh-huh again and he knows I'm not listening um (laughs) because I'm in the zone for something so I totally totally understand (laughs) mine's always that I say I'll be done soon like Brennan will be like when are you going to be done that and I'll be like I'll be done in 10 minutes and then like (laughs) and then like like 10 minutes go by in 20 minutes and he's like are you done yet and I'm like I need 10 more minutes and he's like oh my god like (laughs) I've never he's just learned like if I'm in the middle of doing something he's like not even gonna try to get an estimate of when I'll be done because I'm like I have very wishful thinking that I'm gonna be done things faster than I am and so I like I'll be like no no like don't I want to go to the grocery store too like don't go without me I'll be 10 minutes but it's like it's definitely not 10 (laughs) minutes so that would be Uh, I think he would probably want to kill me for that but yes yeah that's amazing well, Katina, you know, we always have to answer our own fun questions, oh, yeah, but I forgot. since we have each other on the phone, <gasps> I kind of feel like you should tell me yours, mine, and I should tell you oh yours. My God. Ooh, oh my yeah, gosh. Oh my gosh. Wait, that. I have to think about this though. Um, okay. because you have a lot of things that you're one. really good at. I know you have a million things you're really good at, but I'm going to say the one that stands out as like, you're very unique about like. Um, cause I think you and I have a lot of overlaps in terms yeah, of I think know, so follow too. through things like that. But the one thing that I think that your unique superpower on top of your many others, um, is your ability to like plan and schedule your day <laughs> and stick to that plan and schedule. Like it I always amazes me. 
I know, but it amazes me. I just look at your calendar and I'm like, oh my gosh, she knows exactly what she's doing at every single tip point of the day. And you actually do it at that point in the day. Like I, I cannot do that. That is I not me. love schedules so much. I, I am a freak. When I was little, I used to ask my mom to make me a schedule every day. So, and I would follow it. Like I would really follow it. And then like when my brother was born, he didn't want to follow a schedule. My mom thought there was something wrong with him. She brought him to the doctor and she was like, he won't, he won't follow our schedule. And the doctor was like, he's like two, like, what are you talking about? And she was like, we follow a schedule every day. We love our schedule and he won't do it. And the doctor was like, okay, like you are, this one is the weird one. He is normal. Like there is something wrong with her. <laughs> um so yeah I've always loved a schedule that's a really good one um I do I do love my schedule you're correct um so I think you have a very like okay I'll say again I'm trying to pick something that is not like you have a million things and maybe something that's like not overlapping (laughs) right um I feel that you have a very good artistic eye for seeing things that like look good and look pretty and you you're very good at like syncing technology and understanding how to make things look good through the lens and like make them look like professional and like polished and like you're very good at like creating nice pretty looking things that like that are like up to date and cool like my our whole like social media presence would be so ugly if I was in charge of it and you're very good at that (laughs) 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 thank you (laughs) this is like a warm and fuzzy I love it yeah Yeah. so that's it well now that we've just complimented each other yeah (laughs) um nikki thank you so much for joining us it was really fun to have you here as you can tell like we loved everything you were talking about because we immediately related it back to ourselves which (laughs) as humans we are super self-centered all the time and that's what people do but we love it and it was really interesting we were gonna do that by the way (laughs) i do it every day with myself like okay if i had this problem that this other startup is having how would i do it how do we okay that makes us feel better it's helpful i mean you know you joke about it but reflection on the way you do things is i think one of the most important things you can do to increase self-awareness and improve performance is literally reflect you're so nice (laughs) thank you (laughs) well thank you again for being here it was a pleasure and uh yeah we will talk to you soon great thank you so much you guys Thank you so much to Nikki Blacksmith for joining us today from Black Hawk Behavior Science. It was so much fun talking to her. We hope you enjoyed it as well. You can find uh, more about Black Hawk at Black Hawk. It's B-L-A-C-K-H-A-W-K-E dot I-O. Um, We'll have a link, of course, in the show notes. So feel free to go check out their website and their different social media presences. Um, And as always, if you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, feedback, please reach out to us. You can find us at contact.workerbeing.com. You can also um, go on our website, workerbeing.com. Go on social at workerbeing. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. The Worker Being Podcast is hosted by us, Patricia Grabarek and Katina Sawyer, and produced by Allie Johnson. 